Morning. It's good to see all of you out this morning. We're glad that you're here with us. You, that last verse is unfamiliar to me. I don't think that was in our book when I was growing up. I'm pretty sure we only had three verses. I think it stopped at verse three. But I like that last verse too. <laughs> our uh, scripture reading today, I, I chose Ephesians 5 because we're going to be dealing with that passage Quite a bit, actually, in this lesson. Maybe not so much, but in tonight's lesson especially. Uh, we're going to be talking about the subject of marriage for our One Word series. And so that's going to play hand in hand with it. I think the uh, point of the passage is mentioned in the last couple of verses that Paul was really speaking about the church. He was giving a comparison to marriage. And we usually use that as a passage comparing it to marriage. But we don't always use it in what we learn about the church. And that's really the main theme of what Ephesians 5 is talking about. Uh, but hopefully, maybe between the morning and evening lessons, maybe we can uh, look at that a little more closely and, and have a better understanding of it. Our lesson's theme for today continues what we began last week. Last week I was in a gospel meeting at the Old Charlotte Road congregation and their theme for that meeting was if I only followed the Word of God what would I learn about and you fill in the blank and I've come up with some of my own lessons some that that weren't in their series necessarily uh, but some that I think are important and I think it's a, a good thing just to look specifically at what the Bible says about a certain subject and understand that certain subject from what the Bible says that's very important for us as Christians to do. And so today's lesson, we're going to look at what God's Word has to say about the church. Last week's lesson was on Christianity. What do I learn about being a Christian? And that was uh, my thing, uh, that was my uh, assignment. But today's lesson is going to be about the church and its organization. What do we learn about the church? What do we need to know about the church? And next week, Lord willing, I hope to continue that thought with the worship of the church. It is important that we recognize the importance of a thus saith the Lord in everything that we do. It is important to know what God says in regard to Christianity. And we've studied that subject already. It is especially important to recognize God's definition of the church. It doesn't necessarily matter how man defi defines the church, but how God defines the church, what God wants His church to be. There are many churches that exist, but God only had one in mind from the very beginning. Jesus promised to establish His church, and only one is mentioned throughout the pages of the New Testament. I remember somebody bringing up a point. What if someone from the New Testament time period, or what if one of the apostles was to come to visit us today, and we take them on a tour of the town or whatever, and, and we go by all these different churches, would they recognize them? They probably wouldn't, for many of them. We need to recognize what the church is to God must be sure that we are members of the body of Christ in order to be found faithful in judgment, having our names added to His role. If we're not a part of His body, 
then we're not part of the church. And that's very important. What does the Bible say about the church established by Christ? What does it say about its organization and structure? What does it say about its worship and service to God and man? What does the Bible say about being added to the church's number? What does the Bible say about the church's mission? And these are all of our, our lesson objectives. We won't get into all of them today. But what we don't get into today, we'll hopefully get into next week. We begin with the question, what is the church? How do we define the church? What do we know about what God wants His church to be? We ask, how is the church defined and described in Scripture? These are some of the ways that it is defined. This is in similar fashion to how we looked at, at last week's point. But first of all, the church is defined as the body of Christ. The church is defined as the body of Christ. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, and beginning with verse 22, And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is established with Christ as its head, and its members are described as his body. Notice what is said in John chapter 15, verses 5 and 6 specifically. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. The branches are often mistaken for the various denominations throughout the world. That's the way that most people look at this passage. That's not what the view of the church is from a scriptural standpoint. When we look at this passage, we understand it to be a reference to churches in a singular sense. As we look at the Bible, there is only one church. And so if He is the vine and we are the branches, then the branches must be recognized as congregations or the members of the church. I think more so the members than anything and faithful congregations along with them. And individually, we are to bear much fruit to God. We'll be judged individually, not by the congregation that we attend. We're not going to be judged by the leadership of our elders. We're not going to be judged by any of those things. When it comes to judgment, we are going to be judged based on what we have done in this life and how we have served God. And so we, as individual members, are to bear much fruit for God as this is the responsibility of each member of this church the church is part of God's <coughs> eternal purpose as we read into Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8 and most of these main passages are going to come from the book of Ephesians by the way 
Ephesians chapter 3 and beginning with verse 8 we read this. To me who am less than the least of all the saints this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him we are given an eternal purpose. Our purpose here leads us to our eternal purpose in heaven. The church is described as a glorious church. I had a friend that, that all the time, whenever he would refer to the church of Christ, he always referred to it as the glorious church of Christ. And rightly so. Look at what is said in Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll just look at verses 25 through 30 right now. Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Notice here that Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. She is sanctified and cleansed by His blood through obedience and presented without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. She is nourished and cherished by the Lord who loves her. And as Christians, we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. Its structure and pattern are used by Paul to describe what God wants marriage to be like. What he wants it patterned after. He wants marriage to be patterned after the church. Now, there are many other terms that are used to describe the church. For instance, the household of God, Ephesians 2 and verse 19. The temple of God, Revelation 11 and verse 1. The kingdom of God, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. And also the kingdom of our God, Revelation 12 and verse 10. And it is referred to as a bride. And particularly the bride of Christ. John 3.29, Revelation 18.23. Also chapter 21 and verse 2 and 22 and verse 17. We are referred to as the bride of Christ. Now I want you to notice something about all of these passages that we have looked at thus far. That in all of the previous passages, 
The church is found in Scripture to be one. It's found to be singular. We don't read of the various denominations that we have today as something that has been come up by, with by man. We endeavor to be the same church as the church of the New Testament. We do things in the way that God wanted the church to back then and still wants it done today. We do things by God's authority. The church of the New Testament is not divided in doctrine or creed. In its chosen way of worship, it's not divided by gender, race, or nationality. It's not divided by any of those things. The church of the New Testament was not divided and was not to be divided. Now we are diverse in background and upbringing, but we are still one. We are united under Christ by the Word of God. That's how, whenever we look at the church, the, the churches of Christ were autonomous. The elders of one congregation don't have any authority to make decisions in another congregation. But we are united in that we follow the Word of God. And as long as we follow the authority of God, we will continue to be united in that way. So even though we are, are different congregations in different places, Maybe we don't all talk the same. Maybe we don't all dress the same. But we are the same church. We are part of the church of Christ. We see it in its promised establishment in Matthew 16 and verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, the rock of your faith, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will build my church. How many is that? That's one. My church. It's singular. Paul teaches that the church is not intended to be divided in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, according to the context, we understand that the members had divided themselves as followers of Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Christ, and others maybe. But these divisions were not to be in the church, nor should such divisions be in the church today. We're not divided by who we were baptized by, or who we follow, who is our preacher, or who are our elders. We're not divided by those things. We are united as one church. And by following only God's authority, nothing else, we keep at bay anything that might threaten to divide us today. People may ask, can the church be united? Absolutely. If we follow the Word of God, we can be. Now, does that mean that we don't have various disagreements now and then about uh, the context of passage or, or, or its meaning? As long as they're not salvation issues, we're going to have those differences. It's important, though, that we recognize our common ground on the authority of God. That is very important. The church of Christ is also known by other names. The church that we're talking about, the church that Jesus built, is known by, by many various names. I won't give all the scripture references, but I'll try to give at least two or three for each one. 
First of all, the church of God. It's most commonly known in the New Testament as the church of God. Acts 20, verse 28. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, and also chapter 10 and verse 32, and also chapter 11 and verse 22, and also chapter 15 and verse 9. Galatians 1, 1 Timothy 3, it's known as the church of God. The churches of God are referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 16. 1 Thessalonians 2 and also 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The church is known as the church of the living God. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. It is known as the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23. The churches of, known, or of Asia were simply known as the church in Pergamos, or the church in Smyrna, the church in Thyatira, in Revelation chapter 2 and verses, or chapter 2 and 3. It's also known as the churches in Galatia, or the churches in Asia, the churches in Macedonia, etc. 1 Corinthians 16.1 and 16.19, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 1. It is referenced as the churches of Christ only once. Romans 16 and verse 16. And also the churches of the saints, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 33. Now looking at all these different names, any of these names are acceptable. However, if we put on our sign the Mars Hill Church of God, people are going to think that we're part of a denomination because there's a denomination that uses that name. And so that would be a hard one to use, at least in our area. Several years ago, a long time before I even remember, there is a division between the Christian churches, which Christian churches is an acceptable name as well. It describes the church that it is. The, a Christian church. There was a division between the Christian church and, and the churches of Christ. And so they divided over the use of instrumental music. And so we continue to wear the church, name churches of Christ, although I've heard in different areas it's vice versa. And the Christian church is what we know today, although I don't know that to be true. But as we look at... at the names that are given to the church, it, it wasn't necessarily meant to be put on a sign. We are be known as the churches in, of these various ways. And the churches of Christ are, are certainly acceptable in name. It helps to define us differently than the denominations that surround us. It would be just fine for us to put Mars Hill Church on our sign. There would be no problem with that. It's is helpful to, for people to recognize who we are and what we believe based on the name that we are given. The Greek word ekklesia basically means a called out assembly or congregation. And it said in Easton's Bible Dictionary, in the New Testament it is the translation of the Greek word ekklesia which is synonymous with the Hebrew kahal of the Old Testament both words meaning simply an assembly. That's what it means. The word church means an assembly. In Thayer's Greek lexicon it says a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some 
public place and assembly. There are many today, as I understand, that, that focus on the called out part. They see the church as called out. But it's basically an assembly. When we come together, we are an assembly of the church and we are the church of Christ. We are the church of God. We are all those names that, that we looked at that define and describe the church that Jesus built. And so that helps us to understand what the church is. But now we also ask a question. How does one become a member of this church? We understand from Scripture how one becomes a member of the church that Jesus sought to establish. Following obedience to the gospel, we are added to the church belonging to God. We look at the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 37, and we read this. Acts 2 and verse 37. Now when they heard this, they heard the sermon that Peter had, uh, the sermon that he gave in regard to the establishment of the church and, and its foretelling. And, and when they heard all the things that he had to say, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. It says that with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. We read in verse 46 so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. What do we learn from this passage? We learn exactly what they had to do to be saved. What they had to do to become members of the church that Peter was telling them of. Repent. He first told them to repent. And he then told them to all be baptized. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of sin. It's not until they had repented and had been baptized that they had the remission of sins. And we see later on that as they continued together, we see that, that he, he gave more words to, to help them really understand what he was saying. And, and he told them to be saved from this perverse generation. About 3,000 souls that day were added to them. But as they continued together, as they continued to meet as the church, more souls were added on a daily basis. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being 
saved. We learn what is necessary from the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 and verses 35 through 39. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, a passage from Isaiah, he preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe, it's all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. What was required of him? First of all, faith. He had to believe. And he was asked to confess that belief. If you believe with all your heart, you may. So he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe it was also necessary for him to repent. It was necessary for them to repent. On the day of Pentecost, it was necessary for all others as well. And we see that he was baptized for the remission of his sins. After obedience to God's will, we are added to the church, the number of the saints, by God Himself, not by anyone else. We also must continue in faithfulness to God. If we cease to remain faithful, if we turn away from God and serving Him, then we cannot remain a member of that church see that there are those in Scripture that did fall away. And we don't want to be among their number. We also want to focus our attention on how the church is organized. How is the church organized according to Scripture? And I will tell you that it is much different than many people will say. First of all, Christ is the head of the church. None other. Remember, it is He who promised to establish it. We go back to a text from earlier, Matthew 16. Let's read from verse 13 to verse 19 this time. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say, John the Baptist. Some, Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Christ promised to establish His church. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, 
his letter to the Ephesians stresses that Christ is the head of this one body as according to Ephesians 1 and verse 22. The head of the church is not a pope or a president or anyone else that, that might be seen as the head. But the head is only Christ and there can only be one head. And that is Christ. This is one reason to view the Bible as our only authority. Because Christ's authority, as He is the head, is revealed only in God's Word. The only way that we can find out how to be the church that God wants it to be is through the Scriptures. And there is no other place, no other book, no other way for us to find God's authority revealed. We understand that as the church is under the headship of Christ, there is earthly leadership. The church has been given earthly leadership and established under elders and deacons. Elders are also known in many other ways, such as pastors, as bishops, as shepherds, as overseers. And all those things help to describe the work of an elder. The qualifications are given very specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now I want you to notice what it said as we preface this passage. A bishop then must be. Must be. Now I believe all of these things apply to that must be. If a bishop is, is not one of these things, then he cannot serve as an elder of the church. He must be blameless. He must be the husband of one wife. He must have his children in submission. He must, all these things that are qualifications, he must meet these qualifications in order to serve. And in verse 8 we read the qualifications of deacons. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith as a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless, Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and a great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. 
Elders were so important that they were established in every church. As we read in Acts 14, verses 21-23. And when they had preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church, in every church, and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Notice here in regard to the elders that the elders are always referred to in plural form. Not as one elder, the elder, but they're always referred to as multiple Elders are only given authority over the flock among them. Acts 20 and verse 28. And 1 Peter 5 and verse 2. They serve under the authority of God, but this authority is limited to their own respective congregations. They cannot make decisions for other congregations. At least not with God's authority. And because of the great responsibility that is given to elders in shepherding the flock, Deacons are also appointed to oversee the everyday needs of each congregation aside from spiritual matters. They help to lighten the load of the elders' leadership. We also see in regard to this structure that ministers serve under the leadership and oversight of the elders, as do all members. Members are often called saints. Look at how... Paul addresses Philippians 1 and verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Members are also referred to as Christians, disciples, believers. And some are given specific duties based on their abilities. Look at Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The apostles helped to teach and establish the church as we know it. Prophets also served a purpose in bringing Messages from God regarding His will for man. But their purpose is fulfilled. And today, God's message can be found in the form of the Bible. Pastors are the elders of the church as they shepherd the flock. Evangelists, also known as preachers, are chosen by the congregation to help them take the gospel to the lost. Some well-learned members qualify as teachers and help to strengthen the congregation and the knowledge of God's Word. And there are many others that serve in various capacities within the church based on those abilities. Think of treasurers, song leaders, anyone who has a leadership role in the, the worship of the church, uh, someone who leads a prayer or presides over the Lord's Supper. All members serve under the leadership of the elders who are guided in their decisions by the word and the will of Christ who is given authority by God. And all members share responsibility and a common mission. The same mission 
given to the apostles before Jesus' ascension. Matthew 28 and verse 18, he tells them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And closes that with an encouragement. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. The promise that is made that he will be with them in whatever they face, in whatever they do, in fulfilling this mission. Are you a Christian? Are you a child of God? Have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sin? Are you faithful? Are you a member of the church that we've been studying about today? If not, if there's some way that we can assist you, we give you the opportunity. Let's together we stand and as we think.